Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Naked Genetics, the show which seeks to find out just what is going on in our genes. I'm Will Tingle and join me as we seek to cover the latest in genetics research and see just what the front line in genetic mapping and sequencing can reveal about our world. This episode, the origins of multiple sclerosis markers in Northern Europe is revealed and why it might have helped more people than it hindered. We also look at organisms surviving in Earth's most extreme conditions and ask just why might a bunch of animals be turning into crabs. First up this week, let's look at a big story in the genetic sphere and ask a genetics expert what they make of it. It's time to venture back down into Cambridge and link up with one of my genetics gurus, Shivani Shukla. Lovely to be back in Cambridge. Shivani, you're flying solo this month. How do you feel? Very exciting. Thank you for having me. How does it feel to know that 99.9% of all the genetic knowledge in this room is currently in your head? Are you sure it's not 100%? (laughs) Well, I guess we'll find out. Anyway, let's jump onto the story. It's a a seemingly huge story and has generated not one, but four papers in the journal Nature, spearheaded by several universities, including the University of Copenhagen, but also the University of Cambridge, where we are sat right now. Researchers have created the world's largest ancient human gene bank by analysing the bones and teeth of almost 5,000 humans who lived across Western Europe and Asia up to 34,000 years ago. The new study has found that genes that significantly increase a person's risk of developing multiple sclerosis were introduced into northwestern Europe around 5,000 years ago by sheep and cattle herders migrating from the east. Chivani, first and foremost, what is multiple sclerosis? Multiple sclerosis is an autoimmune disorder which means your immune system is overactive and essentially starts attacking things that it shouldn't. So in this case, it's the myelin sheath that's found on the outside of nerves. And once you attack that, the nerves don't function properly. You get things like motor disorders, sensory disorders, and it can have quite an impact on someone's quality of life. So like this is definitely worth then finding out where something like multiple sclerosis came from. And this is seemingly what they've done. They've said it here in the paper that they've taken samples of bones and teeth from 5,000 individuals. But then how do you go from that to a genetic map of the past that you can use to track diseases? There were already a lot of specimens sitting in museums across Europe and beyond. The DNA of those 5,000 specimens were then sampled to create the first of its kind, actually, which is an ancient gene bank. And then to translate that to seeing how does that impact multiple sclerosis in the present day population. They took data from the UK Biobank. So then you just kind of compare and contrast the two using statistics and that allows you to trace backwards and forwards. You've said there it's a bad thing in terms of being a neurodegenerative disease, but the paper seems to allude to the fact that it wasn't necessarily bad for the people that had this genetic marker at that time. That's true. And I think it's important to point out that by a genetic marker, 
we're not saying that multiple sclerosis was advantageous to those people. What actually happened was the genes that code for advantageous things 5,000 years ago, which in this case was protection against certain diseases, was actually pleiotropic. So that one gene coded for multiple proteins or multiple traits. And it just so happened that that also conferred a higher probability to get multiple sclerosis. I hate to use the words like trade-off because it implies choice or sentience, but the fact that it's seemingly worth risking MS to be able to stave off these diseases. I suppose so. And you have to think the lifestyles of the people at the time who were raising cattle probably didn't live much beyond 30s anyways. So they didn't really run into the troubles of multiple sclerosis later on. They were just trying to stay alive and eat and live. It's interesting to note that people in Northern Europe actually have higher incidence of MS than those in Southern Europe. And it's because these cattle herders were descendants of people from Northern Europe and not direct descendants of those from Southern Europe. So that kind of explains that gradient when you go from North to South Europe. Did they find any other disease markers in there as well? Because I read something about Alzheimer's being found in hunter-gatherers. In hunter-gatherers, there were many genes that conferred protection against even more specific diseases like viral hemorrhagic fever and mosquito-carried infections. But those genes gave them a higher risk of things like rheumatoid arthritis, which is another autoimmune condition. So that's another example of that gene was protective at that time and was probably positively selected for. And now we are not staving off viral hemorrhagic fever, but we have the remnants for that gene. And unfortunately, that gives those people or descendants of those people a higher risk of autoimmune conditions. Is there anything we can do with this in terms of treatment? I think it's an interesting way of looking at a disease because you can kind of think about an advantage of a disease and that's true for things like sickle cell anemia. It's advantageous to protect them against malaria. So when you start to see things from a different perspective, perhaps that can kind of guide the pathways in which you take and perhaps those inflammatory markers or those chemicals that are associated with fighting off pathogens might be the ones that we want to start targeting for MS because there's an underlying link which perhaps we didn't know about before. As with every good scientific paper, they always go on about what do you want to achieve in the future? And their plans are to look at, you know, the genetic markers of stuff like ADHD, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder. What would you personally be most interested in finding? If you could pick any neurodegenerative disease, what would be the most interesting you think to find the origins of? I think For things like MS, because we know it's autoimmune, you'd think there's an immune advantage of it at some point. So that's less surprising. But something like perhaps Parkinson's, which is a movement disorder and degeneration of the dopamine neurons over time lead to quite shaky movements and the symptoms we associate. And it makes me wonder what could be the advantage of a movement disorder because that's less obvious than something immune-related. And it's really hard to hypothesize. Something that controls movement might be advantageous, and especially its coordinated movements. Unless it is simply tied to something else that is advantageous, and it was deemed worth it, then that you could 
therefore survive long enough to procreate and whoopsie you got parkinson's but at the end of the day you still managed to reproduce it's all a mystery and i for one am very interested to see where this paper goes in future thank you very much to shivani shukla now here in the uk we are experiencing something of a cold snap and that got me thinking whilst it's no effort for us humans to chuck on a coat and hat that luxury isn't afforded to pretty much every other living organism out there i'd assume So, when the temperature drops, it often falls on an organism's genetics to keep them alive and kicking. So, what does that look like, and how is our understanding of such genetics changing? Well, I want to find out, but there's no point in half measures when looking into this sort of stuff. So that's why I'm joined now by the British Antarctic Survey's Melody Clark. Melody, would you mind letting the audience know exactly where you are right now? I'm actually sat in an office in the Bonner Lab, which is the Marine Biology Laboratory at Rothera Research Station, which is about halfway along the Antarctic Peninsula. You are at the South Pole. Marvellous. We've really outdone ourselves. What's the weather like there today? It's very South Poley, actually. It's blowing about 40 knot winds and it's absolutely freezing. And that's a very good reason for staying inside. Thank you very much. I do not blame you at all for that, but it presumably means that certain organisms, particularly in the waters around you, have a bit of a problem when it comes to low temperatures. They do, but it's actually much more stable in the water than it is on land. So where I am at Rother at the moment, the water temperatures throughout the year vary between about minus 1.86, which is when seawater freezes, up to the giddy heights of plus one degree, which it reaches briefly in the summer. If you go to the other side of Antarctica, to McMurdo, which is by the Ross Sea, which is permanently ice covered, the animals only experience about half a degree temperature difference in the year. But essentially, all the animals in the sea live almost permanently below zero degrees, which is pretty cold. Contrasted with that is the variability of the environment. So we have 24 hour light in the summer, 24 hour dark in the winter. And in the summer, you get these huge phytoplankton blooms, which is the kind of green stuff, the algae and diatoms in the water between about November and February. And then also we have sea ice here, which about doubles the size of the continent every year. All of this put together then sounds like a not ideal set of conditions for organisms to survive. But you've been looking at a group in particular. Would you mind talking our audience through what this latest genetic study has looked at? We've been looking at the notothenioid fish, which are the dominant group in the Southern Ocean. The project was to sequence the genomes of these animals to identify the genes in them and really to develop a resource to start to understand how these animals survive in such extreme conditions. And we sequenced 24 of these fish species. And the idea of that was to, if you want to look at cold adaptation, you want to sequence as many animals that live in the cold as possible, so you can identify species-specific variation, but also you want to compare them as closely as possible to ones that don't live in the cold, so you can identify the difference between cold-specific adaptation and species-specific adaptation. And yes, those genomes are readily available to the whole community, and anybody can look at them. And the important thing is that now we have this information for these fish, we can start to use techniques that we're using to investigate model organisms such as mice, rats and and, and zebrafish in more detail in in these fish species. Is there a potential idea then that someone takes all of this genetic data and they can find a gene or a genome or a cluster that might be able to explain how certain fish manage to survive such cold temperatures? Exactly. And with 24 genomes, that's a huge amount of data. So by making it publicly available, people can then go in and investigate their favourite gene, their particular pathway, or maybe do some some large scale 
studies to try and identify in general how these species have adapted to the cold. So there's a, there's a whole raft of possibilities that people can research into now that these sequences are publicly available. This is almost a call to arms then, isn't it? If someone's out there and has a favourite gene, which I love the idea of something having a favourite gene, you can go out and get stuck into this. Taking this up to a sort of a more phenotypic level, we know several of the adaptations as to how fish can survive the cold. Is it then a case of us trying to work backwards into seeing which genes are responsible? Yeah, so we know some very common adaptations that have been known for a long time. So all of these fish have a particular sort of antifreeze. They, they wouldn't be able to survive without antifreeze in, in their body. And it's an antifreeze glycoprotein and they, they all have it. Bizarrely, this identical molecule also is present in the polar cod. And this is one of these quirks of evolution where nature comes up with the same answer to the same problem in completely different areas of the globe by a slightly different way. So it's an example of convergent evolution. So they all have this antifreeze molecule that they produce all year round to help them survive the cold. And there are also some more weird adaptations. So we have about 16 species of fish called ice fish. They're called ice fish because they look completely transparent. And when you cut them, their blood runs clear. It's not red. So it doesn't have the haemoglobin molecule, the red molecule that we all have in our body that carries oxygen around. And so these fish survive without haemoglobin. They only carry about 3% of the oxygen that a normal fish would. And they manage to do that because it is so cold in the Southern Ocean And as you cool water down, the amount of oxygen in it increases, so it's heavily oxygenated. So they survive in this environment because it's heavily oxygenated, and also they really do nothing much at all. I mean, they are the ultimate couch potato, so if food comes past their nose, they'll eat it, but they don't really go hunting for food. And this is a, a very peculiar adaptation that's only been possible because it's so cold in this environment. And in terms of other adaptations, yes, then we really need to understand what the other ones are. These are the common ones we know about, but there are bound to be plenty of others. And as you say, some of these adaptations are only possible due to the cold nature of the environment, which brings me to the inevitable topic whenever anyone mentions Antarctica, which is climate change. How might the shifting climate affect these fish and the future studies on them? Okay, well... I'm afraid to say for the ice fish, it's really not looking good because they don't have haemoglobin. As the waters warm up, the oxygen amount will get less and they are not able to make haemoglobin. They've completely deleted it from their genomes, which is one of the interesting genetic discoveries. In terms of the other fish, they really don't like being warmed up very much at all. And neither do the marine invertebrates. The marine invertebrates like sea cucumbers, sea stars and sea urchins. So it's not looking good for them in terms of their temperature tolerances but also we don't know how that affects their reproduction their immune system and also when things warm up you may get more diseases that affect these animals we simply don't know but i would say on balance it's it's not looking great which is a rather depressing thing to say (laughs) but i mean if we have the genomes of these animals we, we should be able to understand a bit more about how they perform and how they survive if that's a more promising note to end on Always good to end on a somewhat positive note. Melody Clark, thank you very much. And the paper outlining that study was published in Nature Communications. Music in the programme is sponsored by Epidemic Sound. Perfect music for audio and video productions.
You're listening to Naked Genetics, the program that delves into genes and the geniuses that study them. Before the break, we were looking at the genetics behind surviving extreme cold. But as anyone in the global south will tell you, except Antarctica by the sounds of it, it's not cold everywhere right now. There are plenty of other extremes out there. High temperatures, high acidity, high pressure, and surviving in them also requires some seriously specialised genetic adaptations. And it turns out that the wide range of these extremophiles, microorganisms capable of making a living in hot springs or deep sea trenches, might have more in common with each other than previously realised. I've been speaking to the University of Waterloo's Leela Kari. We are looking at extremophiles, which are organisms that not only inhabit, but thrive in environments characterised by extremes. They are found in uh, the most inhospitable places on Earth, including volcanoes, underneath polar sea ice, hydrothermal vents on the seafloor, and even in the presence of radiation and toxic waste. So to find out just what makes them so hardy, you've been having a look at their genomes. How exactly did you do that? So we looked at the genome of extremophiles or of organisms in general in terms of a language. To clarify, in the same way we use the letters of the Latin alphabet to write text and bits 0 and 1 to write computer code, the four basic DNA units, A, C, G, and T, are used by nature to write genetic information as uh, DNA sequences. And what we studied is what is called the genomic signature of DNA, which is obtained by counting the occurrences of DNA words in a DNA sequence randomly selected from an organism. And here, by a DNA word, I mean a sequence of DNA letters. For example, cat is a three-letter DNA word consisting of the letter C-A-T. So uh, it turns out that these word frequencies are important and contain taxonomic information about the organism's species, family, genus, class, and so on. And uh, this is akin to being able to tell apart an English book from a French book by the fact that the English book is going to have a very high count of the word the, and the French book is going to have a very high count of the word le, L-E-S. So you can tell them apart by counting words and looking at the word usage profiles without knowing a single word of English and French. And in the same way, we can study DNA and the genome by this work count frequencies without needing to know anything about genes, proteins, or anything like that. So this method has been proved very successful for uh, biodiversity, species identification, and species classification. Just look at the word counts. This seems like an an extraordinarily large amount of data you had to sift through. Presumably you had help from cutting-edge technology. Actually not. We don't need the entire genome. Remarkably, you can take any short DNA fragment. You know, the human genome is 3 billion letters. But we can look at a segment that is maybe 5,000 letters. And by word counts of this short fragment, we can determine the species And this genomic signature is so stable that it doesn't matter where you extract it from. From the beginning, the middle, the end, chromosome 1, chromosome 5, gene, non-gene, long sequence, short sequence, they all have the same pattern. So this is one of the strengths of the method. You do not need to sequence the entire genome. You just need a tiny little fragment. So what did you do once you found this out? So this has been used very successfully for taxonomic classification, but what we looked at we looked to see if this uh, genomic signature contains other information, for example, environmental information. And we knew that if there was any hope to find an environmental signal, we would have to look at extremes. And this is why we decided to look at the genomes of extremophiles. 
Does that mean then that if the environment in which something lives in is so extreme, it will leave a mark on the genetic information of the thing that's living in it? Yes, that was our hypothesis. And it turned out that we confirmed that as unlikely as it seems. And for that, we used the machine learning methods, both supervised machine learning and unsupervised machine learning. So does that mean then that if two organisms that may be unrelated live in a similar conditions, that their genetics might be the same? Their genomes certainly are the same. So what we found is that as unlikely as it sounds, as unlikely as it, uh, it is, two organisms, a bacterium and archaeum, that are more distantly related than a polaris from a lichen, were grouped together as similar in terms of word usage because they are both adapted to high temperatures, for example. And this environmental signal, it's pervasive, it's everywhere, sprinkled everywhere along the genome, and you can detect it everywhere, no matter where you take a DNA fragment in the genome. It's a little bit like finding a new dimension of the genome. You know, we thought it was only text, and actually it's it's songs, and it has also a musical signal besides the lyrics and the text in it. So if you flip that on its head then, if you were to just look at a genome in abstract, you might be able to tell where it lives just by the frequency of certain areas of it. Absolutely, yes. That's quite extraordinary. So does that mean that we could potentially use this in a way of mapping organisms throughout the world? Yes. Uh, However, I would say I'm not sure uh, that this applies to normal environmental conditions. Remember, we looked at really extremes, like organisms that are very, very hardy, and they have to live under very harsh condition for a very long time. Probably for like more normal conditions, the signal is more faint and more work needs to be done in order to be able to see whether we would be able to detect. I'm sure the signal is there, but whether it's too faint to detect for normal environmental conditions, that remains to be seen. But that could well be where you'd hope to go next in this study then. Yes, actually, it's it's very interesting. Uh, We are also interested in this because people are interested in space missions and Mars missions and outer space. So uh, some of these extremophiles, for example, Dinococcus radiodurans, who is a radio-tolerant organism that survives vacuum, radiation, desiccation, cold temperature, you name it. Uh, It was proved, not by us, by other scientists, to be able to survive outer space for one to three years. So very interesting questions arise uh, regarding what does it take to be able to survive outer space? And as it turns out, it's not enough to change this gene here or this protein here. What you need is like a pervasive change uh, um, along the entire genome. So it's not as simple as you think it is. I I would never assume it would be anything close to simple when it comes to sequencing genomes. So throughout this, were there any highlights or any organisms that you'd love to shout out as your favourite? Well, I have to mention my favorite extremophiles, which is Pterococcus furiosus. You've got to love the, love the name. Pterococcus means ball of fire, and furiosus means furiously, and it's called like that because it's a little ball of fire that swims furiously in a hot aquatic vent at uh, 100 degrees temperature, which is its optimal growth temperature. And I, for one, can relate to being absolutely furious in everything I do. That was Leela Kari, and that paper was published in Scientific Reports. And to round off this month's Naked Genetics, it's time for Quirks of Evolution and a very unusual convergence occurring in the animal kingdom. To talk you through it is me. Let me take you far back in time to the prehistoric year of 2018. It's morning at the mouth of the River Tamar in the southwest of England. Conditions are cold, quiet and still. 
Cutting through the fog that is hanging just above the water is a small fishing vessel, and aboard it are four doe-eyed wannabe marine biologists, including yours truly, because whilst this boat is used to fish, it's also used to teach. But it is definitely used to fish, and a net full of the river's occupants is slowly drawn up the back of the boat. The irony that to preserve marine species you must kill some of them in a net is not lost on us. The unlucky landing this time around features fish, rays, and, in adjacent pots, crabs. The abundance and diversity of the latter was noted by one of the marine biologists on the boat, as he remarked to another, I didn't know we had so many crabs. Yeah, came a disembodied voice. And there'll be even more soon. He was from the West Country, just take my word for it. Enter stage right, the captain of the boat, white wispy hair, a face like stained oak, and a woolly hat older than most religions. Strolling past the children masquerading as scientists, and with all the whimsy of an abattoir, he muttered, We shall all be crabs one day. That memory will stay with me beyond any heartbreak, endeavour, or achievement in my life. What on earth did he mean by that? At the time, in all honesty, I thought it was just an offhand comment about how we shall all die and become food for crabs. You know, classic ship banter amongst friends. It was only years later that I discovered the truth. Carcinization, later dubbed return to crab by strange parts of the internet, was a term coined in 1916 by zoologist Lancelot Alexander Borrodale. It refers to a case of convergent evolution, involving the process of non-crab-like animals evolving crab-like features over time, or, in Lancelot's words, the many attempts of nature to evolve a crab. The theory suggests that over generations, a bunch of distant crab relatives like lobsters or shrimps decided to ditch their disgusting, non-crab-like body plans and start resembling crabs. There are lobsters and hermits out there masquerading as crabs. Indeed, five separate groups of non-crab crustaceans have been seen exhibiting this phenomenon. These imposters are genetically distinct, but most people wouldn't know by looking at them. So why do this? Why go to all this trouble? Well, it's because crabs are perfect. Crabs have a hard exoskeleton that protects them from predators. This helps them retain water, which is handy when you live in the salty ocean. Their bodies are broad and flat. It makes them efficient swimmers, and their legs are adapted for both walking and swimming. If you're a shoreline creature, it really pays to be able to live comfortably on land and in the sea. Crabs also have specialised claws for grabbing food and defending themselves. Even the small ones can pack a noticeable nip. It makes sense then that other organisms have taken note of their bow plan and followed suit. But the extent to which they have done so is remarkable. Convergent evolution, when two or more organisms evolve the same thing, is common. Sometimes there is one way of doing things that is just both effective and worth the energy expenditure to develop. But to assimilate an entire other organism really is something special. But is it all surprising? Well, Perhaps not. Crabs have been around for over 200 million years in one form or another, surviving a couple of extinction events along the way. There are over 7,000 species of true crab alive today. That's more than all mammals combined. They're schooling us. This is a winning formula that we're sleeping on, arrogant as we are in our soft, fleshy prisons. There is one man with the requisite to understand what is necessary for us to survive as long as 200 million years, and he might still be operating a boat near Plymouth, maybe. I don't, I don't know, it was like seven years ago. What I do know is that the past was crab, the present is crab, and you would be simply naive, a gormless rube, to think that the future is anything other than crab. 
Sorry, I blacked out for a second. That's all we have time for this week. We'll be back next month for more genetics fun. But in the meantime, if there are any areas of genetics you'd like to hear featured on the show, do drop me a line at willt at nakedscientists.com. Thanks to Shivani, Melody and Leela. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Will Tingle. And until next time, return to crap. I mean, goodbye. <laughs>